Well, if you would look on page 11 of our worship folder, you'll find our scripture reading to us this morning, which are um, not the entirety of chapter 2 of Genesis, but a large portion of it. So, starting in verse 5, God's word to us. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust, and from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and he put the man whom he had formed in it. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Down to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in that day you eat, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of the ribs, one of his ribs, and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the Lord said, the man said, This at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were naked, both naked, and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. O oh, Father, we come to, again, the great mystery of the beginning of creation, when you were fashioning and forming us in a garden and in the first man and the first woman. Lord, help us as we reflect on the meaning of desire and love this morning to know, God, that you are where all desire begins. That we desire you above all, but you desire us. What an incredible, profound truth that you desire us and that you're moving towards us to love and redeem us. So may you make that loving desire known to us this morning in your word and in your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. you fundamentally make your way through the world as a lover. You don't make your way through the world 
simply as a doer or a thinker, but as a lover. Last week, we reflected on how, in the image of God's creating the man and the woman, that as human beings, we're built for creation. We're built for relationship, rather. That, that part of our very bodies reflects the need for another. To look at a, a male body by itself is not to fully understand it. <laughs> to look at a female body by itself is not to fully understand it. But it's the two coming together in which it makes sense. We are built for relationship. And if it's true that we're built for relationship, it means that we are fundamentally lovers and that our bodies are drawn to one another. They desire one another. Now, this is something perhaps you don't think about. In our culture, we live in an Enlightenment culture. Very famously, the philosopher René Descartes, as he's reflecting on how he is not just an imagination of some sort of god or demon, he, he comes up and he says, you know, I think, therefore I am. I have self-consciousness, and this is the basis of my existence. And we, at, since the Enlightenment period, have tended to orient ourselves around how we make our way through the world in terms of thought or thinking. That I, I think myself through the world. Or I, as action, right? I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to make myself through the world by what I do. But the picture that we get in the Scriptures is that we are not primarily defined by our thinking or our doing, but our desiring Yes, thinking and doing are important, but actually beneath thinking and doing is desire. How you think, how you desire the world affects how you think about the world. How you desire affects what you do. And we are desiring creatures. And that's what I want us to wrestle and reflect on here this morning. The anatomy of desire, that's probably the best title for this sermon. And I think that idea of anatomy is a helpful one to actually understand what we're doing through the course of this year and what, what we're kind of going towards. If you, are, uh, in med- you know, want to become a medical doctor or a nurse, one of the things, the core classes you take, is anatomy, <laughs> right? If you want to understand the dysfunction or malfunction of human organs and sicknesses, you actually have to understand what their proper function is. You have to understand what, it, what it's supposed to do. And this first uh, 10 or 12 weeks of this series is really kind of anatomy class in the sense of what is the proper functioning as God intended of human relationships, of the human person, of bodies, of marriage. But the challenge is, is that in, in an anatomy class in college or in med school, you, we actually have very good examples of properly functioning organs. Like, we actually know what a heart is supposed to do when it's properly functioning. We know what a pancreas and things like that are. But our problem is that we've actually never seen a properly functioning heart, spiritually speaking. We've actually never seen a perfect marriage. We've actually never seen anything perfect in this world. And so we talk about the original created order, and I think we, ought, we get nervous. And I've actually been surprised at how challenging it is to simply talk about life, creation, sex, relationships, marriage, as God intended it. Because I think we hear these things and we think, my life doesn't match up to that. What's wrong with me, right? That's the challenge. 
But this morning, I want us to sort of continue to wrestle with this. And I want to reflect with you for a minute just on the meaning of heart. Like going back to this idea of being a desiring creature. In the Bible, it uses a lot of different images to describe the person. You know, you have will and mind and spirit and soul. But heart, heart is a central category, if not the central category of the human person. And to, the human heart doesn't point simply to how we feel about the world or how I feel about a situation, but actually how I'm oriented in the world. That you can think of the heart as kind of like the command central station of our lives. Because it's in our hearts where all of our desires and longings reside. To, to be touched in the heart is not just to be touched to how you think about the world, but at the deepest level of your being. Because the heart, from the heart comes our motivations in life, right? I mean, that's what motivates you, <laughs> is the things that come out of your heart. The heart, in a sense, is a direction, kind of a, it's a direction-setting sort of organ, spiritual organ in our life. And at, at, at deep root, the heart is about identity, right? You know, Jamie Smith has a, uh, some of you are familiar with his works. Um, he has a book called You Are What You Love, which is the thesis of the book. In other words, um, that which you love, that which your heart is formed around, your deepest cravings and desires, that's, that's what you are, right? And we, we talked about idolatry this past uh, Lenten season. And idolatry is basically the, we become what we worship, right? That we, when we don't have the love of God and the proper ordering of loves in our lives, we, our lives become deformed. And so it's with this in mind, this idea of desire, and, you know, you know it's complicated stuff at a certain level, right? And I, I've struggled in this sermon to kind of outline um, this anatomy of desire. But I want to ask a couple questions. One is, what does it mean? What do we mean when I say we're desiring creatures? We're desiring creatures. And, and how is this idea of desire related to sexuality? But then, how is God mixed up in all this desiring? And so I want to I kind of go through this text of chapter 2 with three categories in mind. The context of desire, the boundary of desire, and the end of desire. The context, the boundary, and the end of desire. Look in verse... 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God creates a context of desire. It's the garden. He creates a world of desire. And it's significant that, you know, we have in art history all these depictions of the Garden of Eden. And you have, you know, these two naked figures, and you have animals, and you have lush trees. There's a kind of, you know, a delight there, right? And that's proper, right? God didn't just create a functional creation. He created a created, uh, this garden. It, it, he didn't just create a world, right, like God created. He made, he planted, it says, he planted a garden. In other words, there's a sense of cultivation and care that God, just like, you know, when you, those of you who are gardeners, right, you, I mean, why do you plant flowers? <laughs> it's because you want to make something beautiful. You want to, you want to, you want to create a sense of home, a sense of space in your garden, right? And that's the idea of a garden. It's a beautiful place. It's a place full of delight and desire. 
uh, I think C.S. Lewis um, captures this beautifully in his book Paralandra, where um, it's Paralandra is the, where the main character Ransom, it's a second in the space trilogy, he takes a spaceship to Paralandra, which is Venus. And, and Paralandra is a place that, that has not ever experienced sin. And so it's like a Garden of Eden. And Lewis imagines life before, the, he tries to imagine what life was like before the fall. So, so Ransom lands on this, this, this new planet and it says within five minutes, he's already experiencing sensory overload. I mean, he's just overwhelmed with the beauty and the strangeness and the pleasure of this place. I want to just read you a couple lines. It says that Ransom had this strange sense of excessive pleasure, which seemed somehow to be communicated to him through all of his senses at once. He was haunted, but not by the feeling of guilt, but by the surprise that he had no such feeling. There was an exuberance or prodigality of sweetness about the mere act of living, which our race finds it difficult to associate with, for, except with forbidden and ex- extravagant actions. There's a scene where it says that Ransom tasted this strange fruit, and that the taste of this fruit was like an experience he'd never had. And he said if, if people on earth were to taste this fruit, um, there would be wars would be fought over it. Now, what Lewis, I think, is getting at here is that God creates this world that is intentionally invested with great beauty and pleasure and delight, and that's how God wanted it to be. And I think that says something important about how he created us, such that to enjoy the world, to enjoy creation, to enjoy one another, is actually how God meant it to be. It's not an excess of, it's not something outside. When it says that at the end of Genesis 7 or 1 where it says God looked at all he had created and said it was very good. That's a statement that actually is more than simply, oh, it's morally good. It's a statement that it's beautiful. It's fitting. It's just how God wanted it. And so the context of desire is that creation itself is a place where God is invested with desire. But, but the second piece that I, I want to draw your attention to about the context of desire is that God makes bodies that desire. <laughs> to have a body is to desire. And I want you to think about this for a moment. It's very logical, right? I mean, you're, you think about your basic desires in life. Thirst, hunger, the desire for shelter. Right? These are all related to the fact that you have a body and you need to eat and you need to drink and you, you have a sense that I need shelter, I need to be protected from the elements or I need safety. But not only that, it's not just food, right? And the kind of basic necessities, but as we see later on when, when God creates the woman, there's a way that, that Adam's body desires actually the body of another. That the, the sense of aloneness that he experiences in the created order elicits desire to another like himself, that comes from himself. And so that the body itself is a place of desire, this is why the body is so important. I mean, you can't escape your body. I mean, we try all the time to escape our bodies, but you can't do it. And it reveals to us that we are dependent creatures, right? We depend on things outside of ourselves. That's how God created us. But I want to just draw your attention quickly to the fact that what you see in Genesis 2 is before the fall, God, the way people, the way the, the man and the woman worship God was simply through enjoying the creation God made. 
Like, you don't have a separate temple. You don't even have... You don't even have a sense in which, where is God? Like, you don't see God walking somewhere. God is not an object, in a sense, like another person. There's a way that God is in the midst of it all. And the enjoyment, and the celebration, and the working of the land was how we enjoyed and worshipped God. That God was part of that. And, and again, I remind you of this, I, this imagery that Genesis 1 and 2, you get this sense that, that all of creation is a temple, All of creation is a temple, and the garden is the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies are the man and the woman. And they are the image bearers of God. They are the glory of God in the world. So, the boundary, or the the context of desire is that God creates this place, this garden. And he creates a body that's filled with desire. But God, before the fall, sets limits or boundaries on our desires, and Again, look at uh, the text, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Why did God put a tree in the garden that he then told the man and the woman they could not eat from. Why put the temptation there? Why create a boundary? We could reflect a long time on what that means. But I think part of what it means is this, is that what you see already in the garden is that God is... Now, there is an archetypal truth here, by which I mean this is a truth that is a true for all of us whether you marry or not, you never marry. And, it's the, and this is why the, it's the man of the one. It's for all human beings here. This is not just for like a prototype for married people. This is humanity in general. Just like we're all built for a relationship, we're all built for this union. This, we, have, we come into this life with a sense of incompleteness and separateness. That, that, and the deeper desires of our life are always driving us towards union, to overcome that separateness. And this is precisely what I mean when I talk about sexuality. See, the deeper desire to overcome incompleteness in life, I think, is the root of sexuality. I want to draw your attention to this remarkable quote in your bulletin by uh, Ronald Rollheiser. I want to read that for you, because I think he captures a really profound truth. He says, How then might a Christian define sexuality? Sexuality is a beautiful, good, extremely powerful, sacred energy given to us by God and experienced in every cell of our being as an irrepressible urge to overcome our incompleteness, to move towards unity and consummation with that which is beyond us. It is also the pulse to celebrate, to give and to receive delight, to find our way back to the Garden of Eden where we can be naked, shameless, and without worry. Sexuality is not simply about finding a lover or even a friend. It is about overcoming separateness and by giving, overcoming separateness by giving life and blessing it. Thus, in its maturity, sexuality is about giving oneself over to community, friendship, family, service, 
creativity, humor, delight, and martyrdom, so that with God we can help bring life into the world. Now, Rollheiser is uh, a religious in the Catholic world, which means he's celibate and single his entire life. And I think he raises this really important distinction because when we think about sexuality, and I use that word sexuality, we tend to think sex. And we tend to, and we have, as in, this is what Rollheiser says, that we have so genitalized sexuality in our culture. In other words, our imagination for sexuality simply has to do with what people do with their genitals. And yet, the longing and the significance that we attribute to it goes so far beyond being able to explain why we make such a big deal about it. The experience of our sexuality is deeper than sex itself. And we have to be careful not to... I mean, you have to be careful not to generalize sexuality, to reduce it simply to the act of sex itself. Because, as I said last week, you can throw all the sex in the world at these deeper longings, and it will come up empty. Because at the end of the day, what you long for at a deeper level is a union and a fruitfulness and a blessing and an intimacy that the only kind of sex that can do it is covenantal and committed. And it's possible to experience the union and the fruitfulness and the fullness without actually having sex at all. That's the crazy thing that our culture can't sort of put their minds around. Because when we think about sex in our culture, to be denied it, wherever you find yourself on the spectrum, sexually speaking, is to be denied something fundamental in your human nature. To be deprived of a fundamental right you have. Because our culture thinks that sexual experience is essential to self-discovery. Essential to becoming fully alive. Such to never have sex is actually to never have experienced life and to have never actually come to know yourself. But then again, we look to the person of Jesus who actually helps us understand the true meaning of sexuality. Jesus, there was never a human being that lived more fully than the person of Jesus. And he was a sexual being. He wasn't androgynous. Jesus shows us that it is possible to live complete fullness without ever having sex. And that's what he means when he talks about the eunuch. And this is important, not just for the people who are single, but those of us who are married as well. Because marriage, again, provides a context of sexuality for something far beyond simply the act of sex itself. And we have to resist in our culture, whether we are single people hoping to get married, or whether we're married people that are looking to our marriages to do something for us that they were never designed to do. There's such a temptation in our culture, the romantic temptation, to divinize romantic sexual relationships, to see falling in love or marrying the right person as that thing that's going to save you, (laughs) as that thing that's going to deliver you. And I said this a number of weeks ago, But friends, there is no romantic sexual relationship that will ever save you. Just not going to happen. Which also means there's no no lack of a romantic sexual relationship that will ever condemn you. And there's freedom in that, friends. See, the thing that you have to see, and this is the deeper drive here of, of, of sexuality, 
Beneath sexuality, beneath sex itself, is a deeper desire that's more basic, which is our desire for God. See, sexuality, and this is why it's such a big deal, because we try to throw sex at things to try to satisfy desires, but they just are not being satisfied because we actually don't understand the deepest desire of the human heart, which is to know and to love God. <laughs> to know that we are created for Him, as St. Augustine says, and that our hearts are restless until they rest in Him. Throughout the Bible, from start to finish, again, the Bible opens with a marriage and it closes with a marriage. And everywhere in between, there's always the comparison between the human relationship with the divine is always cast in nuptial imagery, marital imagery. Hosea says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. There's something about the marital sort of image and reality that communicates a truth that is true for all of us in relationship with God, which is that a life relationship with God is life-altering. Just like falling in love is life-altering. It it invades you and it takes over your life and you start doing things you never imagined or dreamed you would do. You're willing to move places you would never move. Why? Because of the Beloved. To be with the Beloved. I will do anything to be with the Beloved. There's intimacy. There's exclusivity and commitment. There's fruitfulness in their union. See, all of these images that we associate with marriage that's the language the New Testament uses to talk about our relationship with God. That's the, actually the whole Bible uses that language. In our sacred reading, there was a, a text from the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, which is eight pages or eight chapters of the most rich, explicit, beautiful imagery celebrating the sort of sexual uh, union between a man and a woman. And it's really a commentary on the garden. It's a garden. There's animals. There's everything there. It's, as one of the rabbi, ancient rabbis said, it's the Song of Songs is like the Holy of Holies. In a way, it gives us a picture of what life with, before the fall was like. But at the very end of chapter 8, it says this. And it's a summation of the whole book. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are the flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his home, he would be utterly despised. It's that phrase that love, it flashes, it flashes of fire, and it's the very flame of the Lord. Literally, the flame of Yahweh. And what the poet is saying is that the love that has been depicted between Solomon and his bride, of all true love, is a mere spark from the flame of Yahweh, of the Lord, right? Just a spark. And you think about the intensity of our own experiences of romantic love. That is the reality of God's love far deeper and far bigger than you can possibly imagine. Friends, God, your deepest desire in life, whether you realize it or not, is for God. (laughs) 
And the kind of relationship that God desires to have with you is like the relationship of a husband and a wife, and it's intimacy, and it's all of its erotic imagery. But not only is it true that you desire God, but here's where I want you to, clo- to reflect. God desires you. God desires you. He sings over you. He exalts over you. The whole point of Jesus' incarnation, he becomes the bridegroom. His first miracle is at a wedding. This is the bridegroom coming for his bride to redeem her, to win her, to woo her. Friends, you are desired by God. He desires you to make you whole, to be united. And as Augustine said, you're the union, the ultimate union that we all desire, the only union that will deliver, the only union that will satisfy is union with Christ. And that's what he calls us to. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, as we enter into the Holy of Holies, reflecting on human love in its most intense and dramatic, but your divine love as well, Lord, help us to see how even the most wonderful loves that we experience in this life, whether romantic or friends or children, is but a dim flicker of the great flame and volcano of your own love that someday we will be fully taken up into. Someday our lives will be completely transparent to this love. And we will be redeemed by this love. So set our hearts aflame and longing for you. And help us to know, God, that you are a God that desires us and pursues us in the person of Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.